Hey fam, I am so excited for the weekend. Fall really has set off a chasm of birthdays, holidays, and crazy schedules for our little family. So I'm so glad I get to press pause and meet up with you fam, because today we're taking on part two of my OCD-related disorder series with the wonderful Robin Stern LCSW. And we're talking all about BDD. So what is BDD? Stay tuned and find out. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Alrighty, fam. So today is part two of my OCD-related disorder series, or OCRD for short. And the topic today is body dysmorphic disorder, or BDD. Now, we touched on BDD last year with IOCDF board members and advocates Chris and Liz Tronson out of IOCDF Southern California. And today, y'all are in for a treat with our special guest and lived experience warrior, Robin Stern. Robin is a licensed clinical social worker and therapist in Florida, New York, and California, who has been practicing since 2012. She is licensed and able to provide therapy in Florida, New Jersey, New York, and Cali. Robin's pretty open about her lived experience of body dysmorphic disorder and anxiety, and she specializes in not only BDD and OCD, hey, but also BFRBs, which we talked about last week with Ruth Gollum, and anxiety disorders. And so I'm really excited to share Robin's story and her expertise with you, fam. But first, I do want to note a trigger warning for today's episode. Now, sadly, when we're talking about a number of mental health disorders, and when we are talking about BDD, this is no exception, but we also have to educate ourselves and be aware of how this crippling disorder, among others, can lead to the subject of suicide. I also firmly believe, though, that by talking about suicide, by honoring this pain and the struggles that are more common than I wish were true, we can actually help prevent further loss in this way. So I know it's triggering, and so I do want to warn folks listening to use your discretion in listening further, but I do believe it's a pretty important conversation. And while this isn't therapy, if you or your loved one is struggling with thoughts of suicide, I do want to remind folks that you can go to your nearest emergency room, dial your country's emergency codes, or even call their suicide hotlines. Here in the States, that's 988. But depending on which corner of the world you are listening from today, fam, please know that hope and resources are available for you. And so not to be abrupt, I realize talking about suicide is kind of a hard segue into anything, to be fair. But I have to say, fam, with all of the OCRD episodes, they are so rich in content and so rich in the need for further discussion that I feel like I just utilized every last strip of our guest time to cover as much ground as possible. 
So I'm gonna go ahead and zip my lip here so I can go ahead and introduce Robin to you. So let's do it, fam. Well, welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. And today I am so thrilled to have my guest, Robin Stern, with me today. She is a licensed clinical social worker. She also has an MS in education, and she is a specialist in body dysmorphic disorder as well as OCD. Although she is really just one of the few treasured clinicians being able to provide treatment for BDD. And even though this isn't treatment, y'all, this isn't treatment, I say it at the top of every show, but even though this isn't treatment, this is a great opportunity to learn. And so I'm so excited, Robin, that you could come in and speak on body dysmorphic disorder for our OCD-related disorder series. And so welcome. Thank you. Yeah, we are so happy to have you here. So, Robin, we first connected last year through social media. But I've been fangirling for a while. I've seen different presentations that you've been a part of. And also you're part of the special interest group through the International OCD Foundation for Body Dysmorphic Disorder. And so we recently reconnected because you wrote this amazing article about social media and body dysmorphic disorder. So we are going to be talking about that. It's a very, very relevant issue in our here and now of really kind of just the popularity of social media. It's here to stay. And so I'm so glad that we're going to get to talk about this. But first, as we launch into the subject, I think it would be helpful for our newer fam tuning in and for some of our maybe even longer term fam that have been here in the OCD family community. It's really important to understand what is body dysmorphic disorder? What is BDD? And so if you could help illuminate that for the family members and loved ones tuning in. I feel like, you know, just like also that saying that body image and appearance are part of people's concerns and we see it through adolescence and various points of time through development. So there is always concerns about image. And I think that we want to make that known because not every single person is going to meet the criteria for body dysmorphic disorder. When we look at something like OCD, not everyone meets OCD. Some people have generalized anxiety disorders. But when we're looking at the diagnostic criteria for body dysmorphic disorder, Mm -hmm. we are really the most important thing looking at disruption and functioning. So what tends to happen for a person with body dysmorphic disorder is they see something wrong with their appearance. Mm -hmm. Ironically, even the wording is a little bit off. I would probably would have maybe called it face dysmorphic disorder because most people have issues with their neck up. That's not to say people don't have concerns lower body. But the concerns that they have, no one else sees them and it's minimal or non-existent. And to the person who has it, they are extremely disturbed by it to the point where it impacts their level of functioning. So I think when we're looking at body dysmorphic disorder, we're not just looking at someone with body image concerns. We're looking at someone who sees it very distortedly that objectively another person doesn't see. And we're also looking at how it disrupts their function. So we see it that if someone's school age, they may not be able to go to school. They may not be able to function or focus in the classroom, may not be able to hold a job. It impacts their ability to be present in their family. It impacts their ability to have whatever type of relationship, whether intimate, platonic, and so forth. And so, mm-hmm. like I said, a huge component of BDD is looking at that disruption and functioning. And once we see that really the 
disruption of functioning, we start to sort of say, okay, this may be body dysmorphic disorder. This may not just be a body image concern. And so I see a lot of clients at the younger age, which back in the day when I was diagnosed over 20 years ago, it was like you weren't seeing as young of kids coming in. You were seeing 20-something-year-olds and you were seeing older people who are really probably misdiagnosed for many, many years, 10 plus years. And now we're seeing younger kids. And so would I necessarily be diagnosing them with body dysmorphic disorder? I think I usually, especially if they are, because it often co-occurs, it can co-occur with an eating disorder, it can co-occur with OCD or BFRBs. I think, you know, it's always something to sort of rule out. So it's not always something that I jump to, especially with a young 11-year-old, 12-year-olds, but it's something I sort of keep on the side, sort of always have a working diagnosis. But with that being said, a very important thing to notice and to know with body dysmorphic disorder is that it's a distortion. It's not a reality. There are neurological components to the disorder. Unfortunately, not every single person that gets the diagnosis is going for a functional MRI study to show that their brain is looking different. We know with the research that the functional MRI studies do show people's spatial processing different in people with BDD and eating disorders versus people who don't have them. So we know that this is neurological in nature as well. And it's not just a body image concern due to societal pressure. We know that this is biological in nature. So that's something important with understanding the diagnosis. And right now where our community is, is we're in the OCD-OCD-related disorders. Mm -hmm. Even though there is a lot of differences between the two, there's a lot of similarities in the intrusive thoughts, obsessive thinking, pervasiveness of that, and then compulsive behaviors. And so there is a lot of overlap with that as well. That's such a great point because I was thinking for folks that may say, okay, so if it's separate from OCD, how does this relate? Why is it an OCD-related disorder? In some ways, it can have similar functionality in the sense of there can be intrusive thoughts, there can be compulsive responses. However, you're making a really important distinction that in BDD, there's really this perception of a defect or undesirable thing, most often neck up. And it can range. It could be for women, it could be breasts. For men, it could be breasts, honestly. So that's not exclusive to women, but generally women are going to have certain things that tend to pop up more. And men may have more of a focus on things like genitals or other areas. Yes. Right. But at the same time, it is different. And we're talking about a perception that would be virtually, if even detectable by another person. Right. As anything for the person with the lived experience, it is causing a huge amount of emotional distress. And one of the things we talked about last year in our OCD-related disorder series as well, and I know your friend Chris, we're all friends and familiar with each other, and his mom Liz, but one of the distinctions I recall him making too is when we're talking about something like OCD, and here at the OCD family community, we've talked about this quite a bit, how it's really egodystonic. When we think about the obsessions, they're egodystonic. One of the difficult things about BDD Right. is it's more egocentric from my understanding and really feels more like a part of you. And so if you have 100%. this piece is so disgusting or so awful 
this piece of me, whatever this this focus is, and it can shift. We should know it. It, it could be your face. It could. Be yeah. Your unfortunately, hair. as someone with lived experience, there's been many shifts. Yes, that does shift. Right, just like OCD can shift too. But it's going to have its focused, its zoomed in sure. areas. But it feels a lot more egocentric because it's like this is me, and then. And and what do I need to do about the distress? Well, how do I cope with it? Right. Versus OCD that feels like this feels so different than who I think I am. Right. And that's part of the distress. So right. If I'm understanding that correctly, can you expand on that just a little bit more to help people? Well, absolutely. So big things that I work on with clients, obviously, is their concern initially is that physical appearance piece. But what I have seen universally underneath all of that, and that sort of speaks to that egocentric outlook, is that people with BDD feel inherently defective, feel inherently worthless, feel inherently different. And those are things that come along with their concern about their appearance. Mm -hmm. I don't see that as much with people with OCD. I see the distress it causes them. Yeah. But I don't see them feeling that way. And I think that that's something that's really hard to unpack with people with body dysmorphic disorder is because even when we do the exposures, you know, we cannot look at the mirror. We cannot Google. We cannot go to germs. We cannot go to plastic surgeons. But we still have those core beliefs that we still believe about ourselves. And I think that's something that we have to always work through. Yeah. And definitely, I remember using myself as an example when my concerns were so predominantly about my skin. It was like, it wasn't just that like I had pimples. I felt like I was one. And that was just like, I am this. And then what that essentially meant in terms of how I showed up in my life. And so, you know, I think we're, we're still really learning about the complexities of this disorder, how it shows up in people and how we're managing. And I think it, it, it's just, it's, we're constantly the research, you need more, but we're constantly, you know, seeing it change. Yeah, really great points. And as you said a little bit before, it's different, but it can co-occur with some of these right. other common disorders, whether it's OCD, eating disorder, body-focused repetitive behaviors, that's BFRBs, which has also been featured in this OCD-related disorder series. And it's because, say something like a pimple, okay, or acne. You could see from a BDD perspective, if the focus is on the skin, on the face, how greasy it appears, the, t the tone, how it looks, whatever. There could be so many different aspects of right. that. Right, 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 right. How picking at pimples and different things like that could show right. up. Well, but you might go, but picking, isn't that more a BFRB? And what it depends on is the function of it, right? Right. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily jump to even label someone picks with a BFRB if they have body disorder, disorder because their functioning isn't really the same. So I, I definitely, because I do have a lot of clients that with skin-related BDD that are pickers, I wouldn't even necessarily always per se actually even diagnose them. Ironically, though, I will have clients with both OCD and BDD and they're like you could see that they're very different. Yeah, I am coming out today, but in a different way, have both OCD and body dysmorphic disorder, and they're very different. And and I can see the difference between them. I think what we're dealing sometimes with the body focused repetitive behaviors, most of my clients that have come in that 
sort of exhibit the skin picking that we see in BFRBs, really their underlying motivation is solely based on BDD. So I usually don't then go and give them that additional diagnosis because we'll use similar treatments to stop the picking, but they don't respond to the same comb B model and you'll know, have reversal training. And then all of a sudden it's gone because they their ultimate concern is their body dysmorphic disorder. So I think that that's, you know, an important thing. I think oftentimes when we see OCD and we see BDD, I know for myself, like they are just totally different. And another thing to just say is that BDD is not appearance related OCD. And so that's also an important thing because I think some OCD clinicians treat it as such. And I think we're missing a big thing, sort of going back to what Chris said, that egocentric feeling that people have with BDD that is so inherently there that even when it's not associated with their perception of flaw or defect, it even comes up in their personality and how they sort of carry themselves in the world. That essential feeling of defectiveness goes beyond even their concern with appearance. And I think that that's an important piece we see with BDD. I know I've seen it with myself when I feel like, oh, I'm totally in recovery from the BDD, yet I'm still holding those faulty core beliefs as I'm navigating the world, which is really essentially coming from the BDD that has right. to be addressed, but it's not necessarily addressed through exposure. Right. Yeah. And I think it's it's an important distinction. And partly where it gets tricky, too, is because BDD can be inclusive of saying something to the effect of how my weight management right. makes me appear, but for completely different reasons than eating disorder. Right. And I think part of where this gets fuzzy is because within eating disorder, there will be this described trait of looking at yourself and seeing this altered image back, right? And, and often it gets ascribed to as body dysmorphia. And cringe. I was going to say. And I think folks, I'll hear this sometimes of like, well, how is this different than just regular right. body image issues, right? And there, and there can be a distorted sense of body image with an eating disorder. But if you could help differentiate then. So I'm going to give you a personal experience. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah, please. Uh, so, so let's just like break down really quickly. When we're dealing with an eating disorder, we're dealing with the consumption or lack thereof of food. So we're either, you know, like we're either restricting, we're either binging, purging all related to the relationship with food and our body size. So I want to be very clear. An eating disorder has to meet that criteria. And, you know, there are a lot of people that restrict that don't necessarily meet the anorexia criteria. So there's other labels within the eating disorder realm that they would fit in. When we're dealing with body disorder, disorder in fact, if you meet that criteria and that is all you meet, you do not meet the criteria for BDD. With that being said, there are people that co-occur. So giving you an example, someone with an eating disorder that is concerned with their skin, uh-huh. like has the anorexia diagnosis, but then is concerned with acne or concerned that their facial structure is off. They're going to meet the criteria for both. Okay. But I myself, when I was looking for treatment, and as we all know, just in general with OCD treatment, BDD treatment, it's just not that widely accessible. And it's definitely not very accessible with insurance. So I have come across an eating disorder treatment facility 
that was, I was going to do an intensive outpatient program. This was a very long time ago. And I said, I have body dysmorphic disorder. Do you treat it? I don't have an eating disorder. Yes, Robin, you treat it. So I thought it was very interesting. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I was actually really excited because my insurance was covering it. I was like, let's go. You're like so, golden egg. Yeah, well, especially, I mean, we, we talk the prices are really high now. The prices were the same 20 years ago. So with that being said, I went in and I just found it so interesting because they didn't follow me to the bathroom because they weren't concerned that I was binging or purging. But what they didn't know was that I was sitting and looking at the mirror. Right. So I thought that was very, very interesting that they didn't even understand that the bathroom was sort of like off limits for, for me too. And then this was actually a decision for me at that point that this was not the right fit was we were sitting at the processing group on a Friday. I think I had only gone for a few days and everyone was talking about, okay, how are they going to handle like going to restaurants and like their weekend fit And I'm sitting there like, I'm not going to leave my house this weekend. So like, I can't relate to this. What are you right. talking about? Like, you're, I understand that you have a hard time when you go out to order. I can't even leave my front door. So like we are looking at two different things. And I think that's an important thing. I think people with eating disorders definitely have a distortion in how they see their body. I mm-hmm. don't know that they do the same avoided behaviors. And I don't know if they do the same. Their life is as restricted as someone with BDD was. was like, you guys are concerned of like, how are you going to go to the street fair and eat? And I'm like, I ain't leaving my else right so we have a very different like we're different here so i think there could be an overlap when someone has both but i don't always what i've seen when i've seen eating disorder clients because i have just eating disorder yeah and they don't they don't present the same way but they're not coming to me and saying robin i can't go and enter into a relationship robin i can't leave my house whereas my bdd client is like robin i can't get to a restaurant Robin, I can't, I am not in a place where I want to be in a relationship. I don't want someone to see me. Right. So I think that that's like some like major differences. I do think there's comorbidity. And I, and I think, yes, there is a distortion of body image, but it's not necessarily body dysmorphia. So then comes in that word body dysmorphia. Maybe you want to use that more for people with eating disorders that don't meet criteria for BDD is that they have a dysmorphia of what they see, but it's not meeting criteria of interruption of functioning. It's just not. As a client, as lived experience, seeing it and navigating it, I like envy the person who could still go and live. Whereas I was going home from the program and like shutting in. So I think that these are the little things that we have to look at as clinicians when we're working with someone and seeing what they're presenting with. And I think you will meet people with BDD that it's a spectrum that are able to function on some level or not. And so I want to be clear, people with BDD are not just all house staff, but you'll also hear people talk about, I'm out in the world, but I'm head the whole time, or, or I'm out in the world and like people are judging me all the time. So I think it's just like anything, it's a spectrum and it's a continuum of things. But those are the, the major differences. And it was my personal experience. I was like, oh, wow. This is a very different experience. Like you may see your body is distorted, but it doesn't seem to stop you from functioning. Whereas with me, right? I can't, I can't move when I, when I was, when I relapsed, I wasn't going for heat bay. Right. And you couldn't get me to go for me to be. Whereas I noticed people with eating disorders can still go. Yes. They may be concerned people are looking at them. They may be concerned people are thinking they're this weight or that weight or what are they putting in their mouth, but they're getting People with BDD aren't showing up. 
Right. Right. That's a big difference. Tell me if this works, because something that I thought of as you were sharing that was like body image would be more like, okay, I look at myself and I think I look disgusting. BDD would be like, I look at myself, I am disgusting. Would that be a good distinction? Focusing on not just the appearance of it, but feeling like that's who I am. I am this thing. Like, and feeling disgusted or undesirable or defected or fill in the word of just that really anxious, negative, intrusive perception of self. Would that be right. a fair way of characterizing it versus body image? A hundred percent. Even to this day, I, I mean, we discussed this part of being very vulnerable and honest. And I always, I, I pride myself in that because if I'm not, then I don't help anybody. While I am blessed, I am not, that I don't believe I am my appearance. I do get caught in my faulty core beliefs at times. And I know that's associated with my disorder. Yeah. So it's not necessarily associated with my appearance, but it is at times where I, I go into that, oh, I'm defective. And I'm like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. You know, I, and honestly, I always say this to my clients. It's a bit easier to attach it to a concern of your appearance that you think you can switch than it is to accept it on a human level. Yes, that's a really good point. That's a really good so point. So it's different for people with BDD. It's like, and I get it a lot of times with my clients. Oh, when I change how I look and da, 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 I'm going to feel different. They do not. But it, if you think about it, it's a lot easier to conceptualize. If I change how my nose looked, if I change how my face shape looked, I'm going to be okay. Versus going deeper and realizing, oh my gosh, like this is an issue about like, you're not okay with you. Yeah. And you don't feel like you belong. And it's not about your appearance, but it's a lot easier to think that it is. Right, right. That's the trickery of BDD. And it's similar in the sense to OCD, which again is probably why it gets associated under that umbrella. But it's similar to OCD saying, but if you just dot, 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 right. then you'll be good. But you do that thing or you do something even bigger and it's still not enough. Like OCD is never satiated with that. And so the same with BDD, right? No, it's not. I mean, I'll be honest, it's not. I mean, even the moments that I thought my skin was, it didn't change how I showed up. It didn't change how I felt about myself. And I wish people can understand that. I mean, because it is, this disorder is not about this appearance. Right. It's just not. And I think when you look at body image, it it, it is about really what I look like. Yeah. And it is often when things are changed, you feel better. We just don't see that with BDD because it's just so different. And it is, like I said, biological and neurological in nature, we don't see that with people who have just body image concerns. Their MRI studies aren't showing that because I'm going to be honest, I would say every single person in this world has body image concerns or has sure. had them. Yeah. So we have seen them in the research and their studies are looking different than people who have their disorder. Right. So uh, the point that you know, for fam, when we think about this and we think about, and again, similar, but very different to OCD, but since more people listening are, are familiar with OCD at this point, it's similar to kind of being able to take information, good, bad, or somewhere in between and going, I don't love that or whatever, but I can accept it and move on versus being like, no, but what if, but what if? Similarly, within BDD, well, maybe if I just change my nose, maybe if I get this perceived bump, or whatever the thing is, 
fixed, then it'll be fine. But instead of getting that thing fixed and going, great, I love my no nose. It's like, a, no, no, this is a problem. And maybe the nose is still disordered. Or maybe now it makes right. my cheekbone look at it. And right. it's never enough. The brain is like more, more, more. Right. And so it really is a matter of understanding that there is this neurological reinforcement that is biological. You're not broken. This is your brain braining, but it feels, it feels like you're broken. It feels like you are the mistake. Right. And so understanding that's partly where treatment becomes so important. This might be an old stat. Please let me know if this is updated from any of the research that you know. And I think I may have even gotten this from your Good Morning America video, which I will link on this episode's blog. Uh, <laughs> Rob's like, I was postpartum there. You were beautiful. <laughs> yes, BDD, that little bitch. But one in 50 people struggle with BDD. So if we think about that in the U.S. alone, that's five to 10 million people. And that, this is an older statistic that are struggling with BDD in some form. Now, we made a a good point, and this is for anything when we talk about mental health. We can find ourselves in criterion all over the place when it comes to mental health. It's a disorder when it starts to interfere with our functioning. Right, right, right. Right. Absolutely. And that's not to say I don't help people with body image issues, but I think, you know, to give someone the diagnosis of this, someone who has it. I'm just going to be honest. It feels very minimizing because I know what this took from me. I know the lack of living through various parts of my life because of my BDD. And so I think if we just give people with body issues, this body dysmorphia, and then we associate exactly body dysmorphic disorder, I think it sort of really takes from people who truly have it. And that's, you know, that's definitely something I think I feel. Yeah. You know, as, as as hearing this word, and I was like, I have a little body dysmorphia. Everybody does. And I'm like, no, I definitely have had three medical leaves and couldn't leave my house for a month. I'm not sure that you're on the same page as me here. And that's sort of, again, I think that word is out there. And it's just to understand that that word is very synonymously linked with body image concerns and we just don't see that disruption and functioning the way we do with BDD. Yeah, in in prepping for today's conversation, I was thinking about I think you and I are a similar age, Robin, and I was thinking of the No, I think you're younger. <laughs> barely. Barely. You're like by this many days. No. But but still, we're very close in age. And I think we grew up with the same pop culture type things. Okay. We're close enough. We totally would have gone to high school together. All these things. But I was thinking of the movie Little Women, the one with... Winona Ryder. Yes, Winona Ryder. Like, yes, yes, yes. This was like classic childhood for me. And I was thinking of Amy. Amy's nose. She would put a paperclip on her nose. Or not paperclip, but she'd put a... A a, a little pen. Yeah. And and she would always be talking about, oh, but my nose or whatnot. And they'd be like, oh, whatever. Your nose is fine. Got a great nose. Whatever. And it's not to the point that in that story, it was disrupting her functioning. She didn't go on from living her life and becoming a painter and all the things because of that. But I was thinking of, because it it can be hard to sometimes recognize this in culture over time. And I'm like, well, here's a classic story. And again, not pathologizing and saying this was BDD for Amy per se, but it gives you an example of where somebody else 
didn't see the defect that this person felt. Right. That whether they were talking about it or not, they were acting on it. Right. In the right. sense of like, this really bothers me. And so when we get to the point where that's interfering with your social functioning, call it dating, call it friendships, call it even relationship right. with your parents and family, when we see it interfering with work functioning or school functioning, then we go, okay, this is to a degree where this is disordered. Now, I had a really interesting right. conversation with Ruth about BFRBs, Ruth Gollum. And and one of the things we said is, you know, when is this bad enough? Like, when is it bad enough that it's interfering with functioning, right? And she was like, I hate this idea that something has to be bad enough. If it's causing right. stress, get support. So ironically, you mentioning that just had, because I'm in a group text with some BDD colleagues and the conversation, which was, I actually didn't know, is that for the Y box for BDD, the cutoff is way too high to like now be diagnosed with it. I think they changed it. And so like we kind of were having a conversation like, I think some people actually have this disorder and like because they don't meet that yeah. number or not getting that diagnosis when they're actively struggling with it. Well, in the Y box, so the Y box for her new fam, the Yale Brown obsessive compulsive scale, and she's talking about a BDD scale for Y box. It's problematic, too, in the sense of it's research-based. So I'm not poo-pooing Eric Storch, anybody else. <laughs> like, I'm not poo-pooing this measure. But it's based on some subjective reporting, too, that is hard for often clients, sometimes family members, sometimes clinicians to conceptualize. And sometimes people get really, like, even for OCD, get stuck on the number of, like, they got to be doing this at least an hour right. a day. Most people aren't just sitting there focusing. Some people in really right. severe rut will be focusing right. on it constantly. But right. for most people, it's a passing thought in and out. It's getting stuck at the mirror. It's getting stuck at whatever the thing is. And so to accumulate the amount of time and the amount of distress this is causing and how often you're engaging in behaviors or rituals or things around it, it's sometimes hard because I'm always like, don't get too caught up in the numbers. Just try to ballpark it. It's hard for people Someone's coming into you and they're like saying it's you and they're really discussing like it's impacting them and they're walking with the therapist's office. I think we should take it into consideration, yeah. right? So I feel like I think it's always I'm, I'm sort of thinking about people who just have like OCD because I, I we were talking a little bit like I have OCD about certain other things. And so I think there could be people that like could actually present and be like, I think I may have VDD and it's like really like them OCDing like about could I have this? Like someone with OCD, afraid they have cancer, afraid they have HIV. But I think us as skilled clinicians can really see that pretty early on. But I think what is considered that like cutoff of distress or not, or that, I think we just have to take into consideration the client, how they're presenting and what they're talking about. Either their quality of life was, is, you know, and I, at this point in my practice and career, I don't really rely as much on instruments to diagnose on any of that. I think if we're really skilled, I think we know it. And I, I don't think we need to sit there. I think there are clients that want to see that. And I respect that. And I will give them whatever assessment tools they feel they want for BDD or OCD or BFRBs. That's fine. But as a general rule, I'm not necessarily sitting here, even in like initial sessions and stuff and, and going through YMOX or going through appearances, you know, anxiety questionnaires and stuff like that, all the questionnaires that we have for BDD, 
I don't feel that it's necessary. I feel that I can really, based on conversation and what the client is bringing in, I can kind of yeah. go from there. They're tools. They're tools. But like yes. the tools aren't something that we kind of die on that hill, you know, in, in terms of right. if someone's coming in, and I will say this, I've been in the process of trying to help more people in my area get to know and learn about sure. OCD and OCD related disorders. And I've had questions come back. Well, I don't know if they quite met this threshold or this, that. What would you recommend? And I would say to them, if they're coming into you for therapy, right. saying, this is bothering me, then I'm going to treat the symptom presentation. And right. the symptom presentation, whether they can qualify that as exactly an hour or more. And, right. And as many people learn, they go, oh, my gosh, yeah, I know I do this all the time. <laughs> I right. didn't realize right, right. this was even related to that. Right. right? In that respect, let's treat the symptom presentation. That's what's distressing the person. A lot of people don't come into therapy like low on the totem pole of distress and they're like, just check it out, you know, cool. Right. They have to right. kind of meet a threshold. And a especially lot of, if they're coming to a specialist. If they're coming you know, to a specialist. Right. right. If you're on a waiting list for a specialist, right. you right. believe you have it. Whether you have it right. or not, you believe you have it. Right. Agree. And so... You're coming in because it's causing enough distress that you want to triage that, right? We right. often will see folks coming in in triage mode. Rarely are they like right. just in a self-exploration was just kind of be reflective yeah. and was like, that's right. just not how people are coming into the office. Right. Agree. And when we talk about distressing, so people might be like, well, I got distressed. I get down. I think women, but men, I see you too. And gender non-binary, all, everybody. I see... Right. That people can get down on themselves about the way they appear. But again, the difference of I am this, I am this disgusting person right. because. And that's what I hear all the time. And that was mine. Yeah. And when we think about it, so I, I'm going to be putting a trigger warning at the beginning of this. But when we think about it, because this, these are some stats that we talk about when we're thinking about how distressed folks get. And, and because if it if the nose job doesn't fix the problem, if the boob job or the different other measures don't fix the problem and there's just a new chasm of new problems and you believe you're the problem, you can see where people get to this hopeless place where they consider taking their own life and they're feeling suicidal. But listen to these statistics, y'all. And this was your video. So you can see over the lifespan, suicidal ideation with BDD, 80%. Of the 80%, 25% attempting suicide. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So a fourth of that 80%. First of all, 80% is an extremely high number. But then thinking how a fourth attempt, that's really high. And then when we think in terms of people that have attempted and were successful, so they've died because of the torture and because of the manifestation of how distressing this has been, they've attempted and died from suicide. The stats for people with BDD is 45 times higher than suicide success rates across the board. Right? Like that is staggering. It just breaks my heart. Breaks you know, I just think about I'm 43 and definitely had a teen, but diagnosed at 22 and I I'm sorry to my colleagues, but I just don't think we're as far as we need to be. And it just breaks my heart to hear those numbers. I definitely could have been one of those statistics. And kind of linking it to our conversation about social media, I always think about if I was raised 
in social media, would I be here today? Trigger warning. I don't know. I think that that helped me not having what all these people have today. I don't know how my brain could have managed the filtered world of social media and the constant ads of changing your appearance, the bullying that goes on outside of school, because I was a victim of bullying as well, but at least was able to come home and, and have respite from that. Mm-hmm. I always say, I don't know if I would, and I could have been one of those statistics. And so to hear that in 2023, that we're there, and yet this disorder is sometimes seen as a vanity disorder. It just it's just sad. It, it breaks my heart. Yeah. And it's just, it's just so disheartening. And I just hope that people see this as a real disorder because the numbers don't lie. Yeah. Right. Right. And this can start at a young age. This can continue into last days for people that have lived very long lives. This is a cruel disorder, and there's not a lot of information because I think it's just a misconception if people think it's a vanity disorder. It's like, oh, what what do these people would give for it to just be a vanity disorder, right? You know, I always say, you know, the reality is that people that are unattractive, uh, I mean, who's me to say, like, who's unattractive or not? Or people who want to change things about themselves don't stop living, they don't stop functioning, but people with BDD do. Yeah. And this is a trigger for me to say this, but living day to day with BDD is extremely, extremely exhausting when you're suffering. It's extremely, it's like, that is why that option and why that number is so high of suicide because the pain that this disorder takes and it takes everything from you. And then you go to people that don't understand it. You go into a hospital inpatient psych unit don't understand it. Right. And then you're just left with how do I then navigate this? And it's, it's, it's a very, very, very poor disorder. But with that said, there is good treatment. And there are people like myself and Chris and Scott and Ari and people who are at the front lines of understanding this disorder that will give you that, like myself, who has that lived experience that can give you that hope. And that's my hope, you know, that's why I do this. You know, I never wanted my story or if you would have asked me if I would have done this 10 years ago, the answer would have been no. It's very vulnerable for me to share this because a big part of BDD is shame. So the notion of exposing myself was never something that I, I knew I wanted to be a therapist, but did I know that I wanted to share my story publicly? No. I feel that I have a duty to do that. I think that's the caregiver, the caretaker in me, but I want to help other people. And if it helps one person, then I've done something. When I feel like this disorder robbed so much from me, if I can help anybody and get their life back, then it was worth me exposing myself. And at the end of the day, I mean, so people know I have this. What what does that do? They still don't get it. So if people think I'm crazy or they think I'm not, it doesn't mean anything to me. If I can help someone who can't leave their home or is contemplating hurting themselves, then I feel that by having this disorder and have worked through it and understanding the intricacies that I'm helping somebody. And that's, yeah. that's where I chose that 
part of me to want to speak on it and to want to expose myself. Because I know a lot of OCD therapists have OCD, but don't necessarily speak on it. You know yeah. what I mean? And they'll, they'll honestly say to me, Robin, don't ever tell anyone I have it. And I, I don't judge. Right. But right. I do think that a lot of clients like to know that the person they're talking to has walked in their shoes if they actually have. Yeah. Yeah, I I hear that feedback a lot. I never really talked about my OCD with folks until I started the podcast. I was like, well, cat's out of the bag. I love the YouTuber, Emily D. Baker. She's she's a lawyer and does legal commentary. And she'll always say, shit's out of the horse on that one. I'm like, yeah, the shit is out of the horse on that one. Yeah, I have it. But I have found it being when clinically appropriate and there's going to be times to disclose yes i have a shared experience or not whether it's with a mental health disorder a physical health disorder spiritual connection whatever like there are times and places where that's going to help and there's times and places that may not but i find a lot of people really appreciate learning that you can not only have hope but you can thrive and you can right. lead a functional life it doesn't mean that it will be hard sometimes your brain is always going to be your brain. And so for better or for worse, it can be hard sometimes, but there is a lot of hope. And so with BDD, the frontline treatment, from my understanding, is a mixture of cognitive behavioral therapy and medication support. Right. Right. And so when we're talking about CBT, because we've learned about this over in, in OCD land too, huh, fam? That, you know, ERP, that's exposure and response prevention, and ICBT, inference-based CBT, they're both different versions of CBT, but there's actually a lot of different types of CBT. And so is there a particular CBT that is more helpful when we're thinking about the treatment of BDD? So right now, I think... I have to dive into that ICBT. I think I, my head has been with the other places. But with that being said, we have traditionally used the ERP model. And that's, again, why there is that similarity to OCD ERP. We use the OCD ERP model. I think what we're learning with BDD is that it's just not enough. And so as me talking to other BDD clinicians, we tend to be more holistic and working more on could be family systems work. We could be doing interpersonal stuff. We can be doing more in-depth psychotherapy. So I think the exposures are necessary. And I think if you're a mirror checker, you're Googling and you're doing all those things, those behaviors need to be removed. But I think it's just as important to get to the root cause of the BDD, which most people do have, and to understand the, the mechanics of it and to why you look towards your appearance versus look towards recovering those internal conflicts you have about yourself. And so I will say that as of right now, the books that are out there, the research that's out there is using the ERP model similar to OCD. We're also utilizing, you know, similar to OCD, the third wave behavioral therapies such as acceptance commitment therapy and DBT skills as well. And I definitely incorporate that, but I do a lot of more in-depth work clients. Yeah. Do I know if we're going to come up and more of when we're doing exposures, we're, we're really tuning into that emotional component. Like, how are you feeling with this exposure? Like, what is what is being triggered for you emotionally? Where are your thoughts going? Whereas when we're doing OCD, you know, ERP, we're not necessarily going, we're doing the SUDS level, right? The distress, but we're yeah. not necessarily getting into the emotional components or yeah. how it comes back to that 
support BDD feeling, which we tend to do more now when we're doing the exposures with BDD. I have to really go into the ICBG stuff because I don't know enough about it, but I know I was speaking to somebody who said, you know, well, if they no longer believe that their face is flawed, then, then that's it. And, and I'll be honest, I don't think that I have to dig into it more because it's a huge book that they came out with. I was never there. So I don't know if I could have ever been there with my BDD. Like you couldn't tell me enough times that what I saw wasn't there. So I don't know if I can ever be like, okay, this squad doesn't exist because I never got there. So I have to look into it more to understand it, to yeah. see where it works with it. But that's sort of, I still think we're, we're antiquated with BDD. I don't, I don't, and I say that because the research is better in knowing there's neurological, biological components, but the treatment has never strayed between when I was diagnosed in 2003 and 2023. Which shows- Not scary. Yeah, it just shows like a, I'm going to engage in some supposition here. So this is just my opinion in in this, but I think it shows that there's just not enough understanding around it. And there's some uh, misunderstanding about the mechanism of maybe what causes flare-ups or difference in intensities and whatnot. And what I will say is I haven't dove into ICBT for BDD, but I know that I have some colleagues in our field that have. And one of the things, because it is really hard to conceptualize for so many things, even within OCD, where you're like, how could I not not believe that? Like, it's just there. It's like common sense reality to me that this is what this is, right? Like, I'm disgusting because fill in the blank, right? And there is a mechanism, though, from the ICBT lens of there's this thing called inferential confusion where you are going to take it without a shadow of a doubt. It's there before... You even realize you're engaging in it because it is so ingrained, like black and white, like the lights on or off. I don't have to sit there and do a meta-analysis on whether the light's on. I can see it's on. You can probably even see the light on, even though you can't see the light, because you're like, yes, you're illuminated, right? And so it takes things from that you're like, how could I ever not just think of this as what feels like common sense in, in my brain? And ICBT has an approach for that. But I because I I don't at this time apply it for BDD because I happen to, I've had BDD clients in the past, but I don't happen to have one on my caseload right now. I'm not as engaged in that, but I, right. could, I could always link you. No, exactly. Even. I'm going to, now that I have some time that opens up, I yes. really will start to yes. dive into that. Obviously, I'm always looking for different modalities and anything to expand what the current treatment modalities are now and to give people with BDD of better quality. Right. And it doesn't take away from ERP because ERP we know can be effective as part of the frontline treatment. But the fact that we've only had one frontline treatment, is this really like, do we have other people? (laughs) We need more help and support. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the others, so this transitions us towards social media because one of the other things that happens very often, and I have some stats around this too, I was doing some research and I found this young woman who has a YouTube channel. It was Demystifying Medicine, and I think she's at McMaster's University in Canada. I'm assuming it's in Canada because a lot of the resources were in Canada. And so 
she was talking about some of the research around she was she was first of all demystifying BDD. And I'm going to link this as a resource too, because I'm going to cite the research that she showed in the video. And I think it's a great video as well. But she was talking about, first of all, when we look at the best treatments, we see that as the first line treatment, right? CBT plus medication support. But, and I know you're going to know the answer, Robin, where do you guess most people go if they are struggling with BDD for help? What is their first They're line? going either to a plastic surgeon or a dermatologist uh -huh. or an aesthetic. And they're not walking into a therapist or psychiatrist. Office. Exactly. So they cosmetically research and try to address these things. Because right. again, the, the illusion is if I fix this thing, it'll be better. If I could just right. fix this thing, if I could right. just use this product, if I could just. Right. 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 Well, want quick fixes in life. Let's right. be very clear. Yeah. So she cited some research. So this is first out of, I'm probably going to botch the name, Creerand et al. This is 2010. So this is older research at this point, 13 years old. Like, can we get some newer research, y'all? It's easy to say. Like, I could sit and work on research too, right? <laughs> I'm not doing it. So easy, easy to be an armchair quarterback on that. But Creerand et al., 2010, the research looked at 200 different patients. Out of the 200, so just think about this. One third of people from that 200 client population went in for rhinoplasty. One out of 10 were going in for breast augmentation. And overall, 76.4%, that is three-fourths, that is a high percentage, were seeking surgical and non-psychiatric treatment for BDD. That doesn't surprise me. Of those three-fourths, of that 76.4%, 60% went through with mm. the procedures. And for dermatology, too, and she didn't necessarily highlight this in her video, but I saw the research she posted, and I, I paused and read it all and thought, I'm going to go read these journal articles as well. But for dermatology, like you said, it's either plastic surgery or dermatology. 45, I actually thought this was low, and it probably has grown since then. 45.2% were going to dermatologists. Of that, about a quarter of that amount, 23%, were having surgery as a result of going into the dermatologist. Okay. So what this says is the prevalence is high. The need to act on it is high. Right. Whether it's going into a treatment, a frontline treatment, where most people don't realize that that's what they're dealing with and they're just trying. Well, they don't want to, even if they, even if they get the diagnosis, they still right. want to physically they change They want it. to fix it. Right. And so we look at that. Those are some high, high stats. Now, when I was looking at the research, respectively, the Creerand et al. came out in 2010, and I'm seeing that the non-psychiatric treatment, those stat numbers came out of, it looks like Phillips et al., 2001. Again, I'm going to post these on the blog. But here's where it got interesting. It's already interesting, but here's where my brain was like, mm, I'm going to cross-reference these things. So we're talking about social media today. Okay, so here's, here's story time for you, Robin. So this research is old. 2001, that's 22 years ago. 2010, that's 13 years ago. And I thought, so when did social media really start to become more prevalent? And this sent me on a dive because Robin has written this amazing article. Thank uh, you. 
my hope is that the way I perceive social media could help people navigate it a little bit better. Cause like, I just literally think it's smoke and mirrors and like a joke. Like I don't, unfortunately, a lot of people go in and like, this is the end all be all. This is true. It must be. And I just like, I'm just like, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. But, but here's, here's where I thought, like, this is so interesting because 2001, you guys, when the research came out from Phillips et al. And that was our research saying that we had, you know, 76 some odd percent of people seeking out med spas, seeking out cosmetic surgery, dermatology. This was before social media was really big, right? Right. I would, that was such a high number before yeah, everything, I'm sure it's not that it's even worse, just, right? So back right. in 2001, the only social media. 2001. Yeah, because that's when 2001 is when that research came out. Back in 2001, the only social media that really existed was called Rise, and it was a precursor. I don't even know that one. I don't either. It was a precursor for LinkedIn. Probably because we were like college age since we're pretty much the same age, even though I'm younger folks, but, you know, technicalities. I'm just Josh and Willard. (laughs) But Rise was a precursor for LinkedIn. Okay. What was going on around that time? Let me see. So this is just going to be a fun little walk through the park. I'm going to reference the articles where I got this uh, because at first I was Googling y'all. I'm a good Googler. Uh, when did, when were these different platforms created? And then I thought, you know, I bet somebody else has done this before and it's all like in an article and it was right. So we have Rise was in 2001. Friendster was in 2002, March of 2002. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then the only things we had really kind of predating that, Yahoo, uh, remember Yahoo, y'all? What do you like, chat rooms? Chat rooms and messenger, but it was less visual. It was more text. Yeah, like, I mean, AIM, right? Like, instant yes. message. Like, I, I uh-huh. would just put, yes. there were no photos, so you would just, yes. like, put, like, written things, like, I'm away. Right, right. So, AOL, right. I am, this is, like, this is, like, my youth. <laughs> Probably think about it, too. Back when, and this was, like, this was a big deal, y'all, doing right. AOL, right. doing right. IMing, right. instant messaging. Because at the time, text messaging wasn't even really a thing. If you had text plans, you paid off the remember when butt for it. Yeah. yeah. And so AOL was around in 1997. So again, this preceded, but it wasn't as much the visual. And you can imagine for OCD and many other things, and, and it's not that you can't get caught up in different reading and research, but you can imagine how when things became more visual, how much more this feeds into not just the more broad body image issues, right. but for something like BDD, where you have comparison photos, you have you you have the mirror and you have Instagram, you have you know all of these different things. So we have Friendster in two thousand two, LinkedIn came in in two thousand three, followed by High Five. I'm I never did High Five. I don't know what I don't know what High Five is, but I did do MySpace, also two thousand three. There was an. Orca in 2004. I don't know if that's still around. Facebook technically launched in 2004. I didn't join for years because I was like, that thing's not sticking around. And now that's like, that's so funny. Still (laughs) my main thing. Yeah, I was like, fine, I'll join Facebook. We had Yahoo rolled out something called 360 Degrees. Never did that. That was in Yeah, I didn't see that one. YouTube didn't start till 2005, right? And that's where you're going to start getting more video content. 
And and so again, helpful for sharing and yet not helpful when we think about BDD, when we think about certain things within OCD, then a number of other mental health disorders that can can be triggered. And so Bebo, I don't know that one. That was 2005. Mm-hmm. Twitter, 2006. Yes. Right? What is it, X now? Yeah, it's X now. We have Instagram in 2010. We have Pinterest in 2010. Mm-hmm. So Pinterest. That's and- also, I would say. If you're thinking of like, how do I want to like style my hair looks, face or makeup, face, nose rings, earrings, accessories, all the things. And with these perfect models, not because these models are perfect in real life, but because Photoshop preceded all of this shit. And I think that's what people need to realize. Yeah. Yeah. So we have the Photoshop. We have all that. Then we have things like Snapchat in 2011. We have TikTok and Discord and just so many different social medias blowing up. WhatsApp and Skype. You said you used to see people via Skype. We were talking beforehand. Right. Um, Skype, Facebook Messenger, which is used to share a lot of different things. Certainly you can share recipes. You can share images. You can share right. stories about like testimonials about dermatological products. You can do all sorts of things, right? Right. And so we- Absolutely. And so we have the rise of all of that. In addition, because my deep dive game is strong here, I started looking at when did we start doing online dating, right? Online Ooh. dating where we put the pictures. In, in the, the 90s. In yeah. the 90s? Yeah. yeah. So 1995, Match.com. Really? Then, yeah. Is when Match started. Then. In- I didn't realize that because I was still in high school. Uh-huh. Me, me too. (laughs) Then in 2000, the very first algorithm, so not just based on picture profile, you know, whatever garbage people do or don't put on there. First algorithm based dating site was eHarmony, which, by the way, my husband and I met on eHarmony. Amazing. Is it not? I mean, also eHarmony's headquarters used to be really close to my graduate school in Pasadena. And so. Wow. Yeah, and had a bunch of friends that worked for EH there. Yeah, E to the H. And so we have eHarmony. We have Plenty of Fish, OkCupid. Those were the free, like, you would get the Craigslist dates off of, like, some people would use Craigslist. You're laughing because, see, we we are from the same time, Robin and I. So we're. That's funny. You're picking up what I'm putting down here. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say I've had people that have come to me where they're fit family is taking out an ad in the paper so that's pre like pre us because that yes. you are not a you're right we out. were not taking out ads in the paper but the paper was a thing it wasn't like online oh, subscription as much right. they might have been rolling that out so we see how dating websites have taken this and then as as kind of my cherry on top robin of my research and development here i started looking at when did filters on social media. No, like it's been forever, but I don't know. So in 2015, oh wow, almost 90 years. And it came out through Snapchat first. There was an American photographer, his name was Cole Rise, and he introduced the first filter. It had like five different filter options. And it was considered AR, augmentative reality. Now, if we think of like plastic surgery, dermatological things, some of these non-pharmaceutical, non-psychiatric services that folks suffering from BDD would be engaging in. 
we look at how it's augmenting, how it's just a right. nice, a nice way to slap. Right. We're changing right. this on it. Right. So now you could augment your reality, which means you basically can change things you don't like about yourself. You could give yourself whiter eyes, better teeth, whiter teeth. You could give yourself better skin complexion. You could give yourself the more jaunt looking face. That right. It, and so it started with Snapchat, which I've actually never downloaded Snapchat. I never, either did I. And I didn't realize that Snapchat has been around as long as you said. Right. Right. I mean, I'm like showing just what kind of fun I am. But the most I know about right? Snapchat is from like the Alex Murdaugh trial. Again, I follow a legal commentator on YouTube. And so I'm all up in That's that. so funny. That is so funny. I'm like, they were subpoenaed. There was a whole thing. But Snapchat was the first one. And I do remember people playing around with the filters, whether it was like it could give you like the dog ears. Obviously, you're not a dog all of a sudden. But where that right. gets more dangerous is how it it takes this perception of really a non-existent bar for what beauty is, what sexy is, what successful is even. And we started to not only, and it didn't keep people from going into plastic surgeons, but now we can augment it and we can look at a filtered version of ourselves. And then other folks are looking, sometimes knowing you have a filter, sometimes not, and going, damn i am i'm 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 grotesque because right this- i think that's what i say in general like an advice for people like know you're going on social media and most likely you're seeing a filtered version of whoever is posting oh, you know what they say on filter yeah 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 because they want you to think that that's their natural thing like, right the thing is and it's so funny like as a mom robin has a young kiddo and so yeah. we know, like, we could post this cute little picture of our kiddo, and there's probably Cheerios and a mess of toys and crap Bonnet. right off screen. But that's not what we're, we're not like, hey, get in front of the trash that's overflowing while I take right. this picture of you. No, I'm taking this adorable picture with the clean house behind because, of course, that's how we love. Right? And it's already, like, the vantage point. Get this best kind of perspective. And then it's altered. It's augmented. Reality is augmented. Right, and so right, right. This is the day and the age that we're growing up in. And we're looking at other people's photos and we're going. Well, we think it's real. We think right. it's real. That's attractive. That's reality. But look at me. Right. So you can you can already see just from a body image, fat shaming, attractive, sex driven, whatever culture. Right. Society. How an emphasis is put on that. And if you are dealing then with the distress of not only do I have this perception of my appearance, but I am this. I feel like I am this disgusting, this this grotesque, whatever. Pick a word. Then you can see how dangerous social media can be. Right? And so... The article that you wrote, and I'll let you kind of summarize it overall, but part of what I really appreciated about it is sometimes, and whatever the thing is, I I know people with addictions deal with this, particularly alcohol, where it's so accessible, right? Where you go like, oh, but I could go to the grocery store. I could go in an Applebee's. I could go into a nice, fancy restaurant. Alcohol is going to be in all those places. So do you say, like, never leave your home and you'll be good? Like, that's not practical. And in this day and age, not engaging in social media. But I don't think it's fair either. And like I always come from that sense of like, just because I have BDD, should it mean 
I shouldn't take care of my parents. It shouldn't mean that I can't engage in things. But then I'm going to always say this, depending upon where you are in your treatment and your recovery should tell you and direct you of what you should be doing. Yeah. So if you're extremely symptomatic with BDD to the point where you can't even handle your own reflection and you are, you're so fused with your beliefs about yourself, you may decide that this isn't the opportunity in time to be on social media to look at people's photos. But what I often tell clients in general, so sometimes that would be advisable, and I just tell people across the board is understand that people are choosing to post things that are positive. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that people aren't going to... Ch- I, you know, shared about the loss of my grandmother and so- social media. Did I, did I show every image of what happened towards the end? Did I go into every word of what I felt through the end of that? No. And I think that's something people need to understand. Social media is a glimpse into somebody's life. And it's often not really based on reality. It's augmented, (laughs) whether it's filtered or not. Yeah. Correct. So what I tell people is realize that when you're going. Realize that you're looking at an augmented reality. But it may not be enough for people. Mm -hmm. And it still may be triggering. And I think that's the reality. And that's where it comes back to where are you in your illness. But I think every person whether you have BDD or not, you need to understand that when you're looking at social media, you are not looking at reality. Mm -hmm. And if you want to look at reality, live, get out into your life and live. Mm -hmm. And social media is not reality. And I think that has helped me be less triggered. And that's probably why at times I take a lot of social media breaks because I don't want to see the BS of everyone's filtered life. I'm not interested in you telling me and trying to sell me an MLM product where you're like not filtered. And then I see the photo, like the, the sign up there filtered. When I don't see pores in your face and your face, facial, stru- like face, like your outline and it's blurred, you're using a filter. I, I think unfortunately when someone doesn't have great insight, which we look at also, by the way, with body disorder disorder. Yeah. It's very hard for them to accept that. And they still think it's real. I think for me, I just know it's not. I sort of, through my podcast journey of speaking with people, I am trying not to be judgmental, but I came off probably very judgmental people who use filters and saying, I don't get it because I have BDD and I don't get it. I don't understand it. And now I'm just like, it's artistic expression. But people with BDD are very vulnerable to that. And so what I just tell people is, I don't think it's fair to say you should never use it. I think you need to take a step back to see where you're at. And if you're, you know, feeling okay, I think it's fair. I think you should always put a time limit on it, whether or not you have a sort or not. I think we could all lose ourselves. You ever find yourself like on friends of a friends of a friend's page? And I'm like, what am I looking at? What? TikToks or reels where you're like, oh my gosh, I don't even care about how the cottage cheese curdled. How did I get here? But yeah, yeah, that's what like you lose time. And I mean, and that's that's just me in general with I call value-based living. I, I just don't know. I think everybody would benefit from not being on social media as much as they are. But I I think it's not fair to say to someone with EDD because you're getting images. And I would just say, rule of thumb probably shouldn't be following just like beauty influencers that are focusing on appearance or focusing on 
cosmetic procedures. But short of that, I think it's the way you have to communicate. And I think it's a way of people sharing. But just remember, it's probably not fully based in reality. And it's definitely augmented. Yeah. Whether you're using a filter, which I don't use, or even I'll use light, right? So like I'll use and light is a filter. So, I mean, I think we just, I think that's an important piece to have. Yeah, for sure. And it, it comes out to not just in images that we're seeing. We see it in videos. We see it in games. We see it in so many different ways. Have you ever watched Vanderpump Rules? So random, but I am a big fan and I lived in West Hollywood. And so I oh, yeah. like the block in a way uh-huh. the restaurant. And I've been on one of the girls' podcasts, the Wala, and I was on Sheena's best friend, Jamie, who's done guest appearances. She was in her wedding. I was on her podcast. Did as well. you talk about BDD with them or you did? Oh my gosh, I yeah. love that. Freshman. Yes, I did. I'm so proud of you. Did you, I'm just, now, now I'm sorry. I'm like spinning out on a little. Right? I mean, that's how I felt with hands are from. Yeah. But, but did you, uh, and, and guys, fam, I'll bring it back. They've heard me go on a little bit about Vanderpump a little bit. I bring it up every now and then. I do. Actually, I did a water cooler chat about BFRBs. And I did a whole sequence with Legos, but I did this whole VP thing on it. And my husband and I laughed really hard. Like sometimes you can zone out and be watching TV. And I'm like, like VPR, you know? And then I animated a whole sequence that made me laugh. And so it was like an Easter egg to myself. But I'll have to send you that clip. Yes. Because I think you'll appreciate it too. But I love that you talked to them about BDD, and this is why I brought it up. Okay. We, having moved here from LA, too, are very familiar with all the different areas. And when they moved to the Valley and were like, sellouts and all the things. <laughs> I'm kidding, Valley Fox. Thank you for listening. <laughs> did you reach out through an agent or did you reach out? Like, how okay, did you? Okay. So, so random. You have a and, mutual um, friend. I mean, I will admit, guys, I'm a fan girl. Like, I like from rules i think because i live there yeah and i feel like they're younger than me they are definitely younger yes but like in their late 30s now like Kristen is 40 oh yeah so so, so is scandal there uh he is in his 40s right and yeah so, so but i don't know what made me dm her and i don't know what made her look at it but she did. And I was like, you should totally do a podcast. I'm meeting me. And she's like, oh, my God, I would love to. Let me get my assistant to reach out to you. Did she know what BDD was? So she had also sort of the preconceived notion of like BDD being body dysmorphia. Because if you think about it, I wasn't sure, okay, how is this going to relate? Like, how am I, 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 I love speaking to this girl. If I was in LA, we would have met in person. I was like, we were Zooming together. I was like, this is awesome. This is such a cool thing. And then it just naturally progressed because what I really appreciate about Lala is that she's very honest. Right. And so I was able to utilize that to really show that for people with BDD, they appreciate that. And then letting her know when she was concerned, like, oh, she would say to a friend, like, oh, I think you have body dysmorphia. And then when I told her what it was, she goes, oh, okay. Like, I now understand what this disorder was. So I think it was a lot of educating. Yeah. But what I really liked, because of course I was like, wait a second, how is this going to vibe when Lala goes and gets things done? 
And then I realized it's not about, and I want to be very clear, people with BDD. It's not about people shouldn't get procedures done. Right. It's about when it's a psychiatric disorder and you think that it's going to change your life and change who you are, then you have to think about that. And second to that, celebrities, and I know that this has been a controversy, but I really believe celebrities that have a platform mm-hmm. related to their image, mm-hmm. okay, should be honest. I understand privacy and all of that. I'm a therapist. You're a therapist. Because I'm BDE therapist, I will say I've never gotten any procedure done. Mm-hmm. But I think if someone like Lala or a model such as Bella Hadid or Gigi Hadid, if they're going to go and they're going to present themselves and they're going to be like, oh, I'm a supermodel, but you're not going to show you got procedures done and you're going to be like, I had a glow up. It's giving the wrong message because then a person with BDD is saying, I should glow up that way. Yeah. I should have this. And it's like, no, these people got procedures done. So that was very helpful for me to see how was I going to frame my conversation with her? Because especially because I knew out of all the Vanderpump characters, she was the one that actually probably got the most work done. Well, and she's very open about it. She'll be like, but I got this talked, I got this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what's interesting is totally wanting to now talk <laughs> to you about that. I guess focus, Nicole. Well, so my husband and I, okay, so again, I follow this legal commentator. Scandal bullshit came up and broke big time early summer this year. And I wasn't into it. And I was like, I, I couldn't get into it. I didn't know enough about it. But I was like, no, I got I, like, I don't even have hours in my life to whatever. But we do like to binge watch different shows. And we were at the end of a binge watch. And so my husband was also hearing from some of his coworkers, like the, the ridiculousness of VPR. And we used to live there. Oh, so you're on an original VPR. No. Roger. No, oh, I'm already- so so then I love that. So then this podcaster, EDB, Emily D. Baker, finally succumbs and she's about our age, too. And so she succumbs and then she's like, oh, my gosh, I'm I'm so zoomed in. And then I was like, well, that sounds like a fun show, not just because she gave an endorsement. But, but also I think because you lived in L.A. I feel like I you, lived in you L.A. definitely can buy it. I do. I love it. I love it. Right. When we see things around and we're like, oh, my gosh, they're totally here and whatever there and right, the right, traffic right, right, right. and blah, blah, blah. And when they're talking about like going out and visiting Sheena at the beach and they're like, she might as well live like she's in Marina Del Rey. She might as well. <laughs> and I'm like, I know because you're driving from the valley. But anyway, so like people in, that lived in California love to talk about the traffic, and it really is a thing. But it does bring me joy, and it's nostalgic, too, to talk about the traffic, even though I hated sitting in traffic. And so I started watching VPR, but as I started noticing Raquel, no, I'm going to call her Rachel, because we're not friends, Raquel. <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> That's well, she's a- first, so let's be clear, she's all on social media with Rachel. So she is now. She is now. But what I will say is, as I was watching it, and granted, so I watched like all 10 seasons. Can't even imagine. I was like... Patrick, I feel like some folks are dealing with BDD. And and I will say, my husband used to work in the industry, and I oh. I get that sometimes it's not even what your own brain is saying to you. It's what your agents are saying to you, that you have to look this way to book this part. It's extremely critical on image, Hollywood, and all of yes. the celebrity and stuff, right? Agreed. So there's that. But still, I was sitting there, and I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, the amount of... Botox at an early age before they even needed Botox, right? Right. And I right. and, and again, this isn't saying that I love Lala, and I love I want to say I love you, Lala. But yeah. and you could say that you you grew out of your face, but she got so much like she was beautiful. Yeah, she's so she was, but you could but see there's the like a natural beauty. right. 
And you see how, and I, this by no means is like a slam on anybody that ever has gone in for a cosmetic procedure or Botox. I use Botox for migraine. I have terrible migraines and it's, you know, it's not the same as cosmetic Botox because you still, you don't get all the creases taken care of, but it helps a lot with the headaches and it's made a quality of life difference. And I have to tell you, I don't hate what it does for the wrinkles that it does touch each time. But I'm looking at these girls going, oh, my gosh, with the Botox in their young 20s and not just the girls, the boys. I was like, does Sandoval have BDD about his hair? Like all the things he would do. Well, it's funny. He is the one that like I feel like dermaplaning. If you look at like season one when he's shaving his face. Yes. Now he would have had it at times. People are doing that now cosmetic. Yes, they are. To kind of bring it back to like the BDD part. I think the question is, again. Is there a destruction of functioning? Is there a distortion? And it's in the podcast. But even Lala admitted, like, she, and I think she's talked about even through the show, like, acne. But on her podcast, she had talked about how when she had acne growing up, it was really hard for her to go out and she was really struggling. But as soon as her acne got better, that was done. And I think that's where, again, I think things can look a certain way. But then the question is, is it that? Like Lala will go get filler and like do a full makeup look, but then she'll rock out and go out and wear sweats or on nothing on her face and get shot by the paparazzi because she knows she's going to get shot. So I I think it doesn't care. I mean, we're not in her brain. We can't see that. I think that's what we don't know. Right. But 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 overall, she's like very confident in no matter what, whether she's dolled up to the nines or she's rolled out of bed. And I appreciate that candidness about her because she has a strong platform. Yeah. I, and that was where we connected. And I was like, this is going to work because I was like, oh, no, she's like all about beauty. Like, let me see how we're going to navigate that. But uh, her honesty is is what people who struggle with this need. Oh, yeah. We don't need people to say I've done nothing like the Kardashians. Like, we don't need that. Right. Like, right. Again, I, I did another podcast with a friend of Sheena and she was like, well, I don't feel that people need to share that. And I said, I understand that. I said, I get privacy, but I think I also feel like if you've chosen that role in your life, yeah, that's sort of your responsibility. Like it's like actors that don't want to be bothered. Like you've chosen a career where that's unfortunately like when we grew up, we didn't have access to celebrities. What are we, letters to them? Like, it was like, this, like we didn't have any access to that. Get the, get yeah. the tiger beat and put the poster on our wall. Right. But now it's like people feel like they have access. People feel like they know them. It's like this whole other thing with social media. So I do feel like if you've chosen to have a makeup line, like the Kardashian, or like a body line. And I've had that question asked millions of times. And I can't answer this professionally, but a lot of clients say, it's Khloe Kardashian. My response to that is, could she have an obsession with surgery and not like how she looks? Possibly. But from the outside, a person with BDD, like she goes to places where she used to go the way she looked 20 years ago. I didn't see a disruption in functioning. Now, again, there could have been, she may have that. But I just feel, you know, and, and as much as I've gone back and forth with this, speaking to you today, I just feel that people who have those platforms, it's just part of their job, like their responsibility. Yeah, right. Well, and, you know, one of the things that I think then can be helpful in thinking about is, yeah, 
somebody can have an addiction to doing cosmetic procedures. They can have it just like you can have an addiction to anything else. But also it's like it's characteristically different than how BDD would function. Because if you get a hit and you're like, ah, I feel normal. Or, ah, that feels good, but now like, right. what else can I improve? Because that felt so good, I want to feel that high again, right? BDD isn't about feeling that high. That's BDD is about feeling I am broken, and I right. thought this would fix it, and right. it's devastating it's that it's right. not. Now what do I do? That is different than getting a hit, right. getting a high. There's not a high. There's no, there's no like, I've I've reached this level. There's the veiled carrot of... You know, maybe if I can just fix my nose, then it would be better. Right, right, be right. Better, right. But but it's not a fix. And so it could very well. And again, we have to keep in mind, especially as people get bigger and bigger in their career, like how that impacts them. Like there might be a reinforcing agent of like, no, I, I'm sure. happy with I how I am. Help. But they say I need to be skinnier or I'll never get the part. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that absolutely is a piece of it. But we also then see how someone who is looking at themselves in the mirror or avoiding the mirror altogether because of just how much disgust or shame they feel. And what's a shame, and I understand you all need to make a living, is that a lot of these reality stars and influencers are getting paid by like laser companies and companies that do these procedures to share on their social media platform to their fans. So, yes, before you can even think about it, you can be like, well, I don't like this and put it out there. And then you can think about it and be like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have posted. If I posted it, I have to assume there's always a possibility someone screenshotted it, even if it's on for a second. Right. And think about it in a day and age where it's like I can say anything and, and, and we're often for any given person our own worst critic. Right. So if right. I can post something before I even think about it, and even if I have the the reflection later going, I was just feeling whatever in the moment and right. I take it down. Somebody else can see that. They can go in the way back time machine, look at past copies of whatever was posted. Right. That trail exists now. And there's going to be somebody going, oh, I'm measuring my worth, my value in these different ways and neurologically back. So it's not just, oh, I'm right, dealing exactly. with insecurity, but neurologically right. backed. And then and this person thinks this, like, it's so dangerous. And so in terms of it's not that we should be afraid to speak, but being aware, especially if you have a platform of influence in how you're being regarded. And if you're not saying you did do it, but you're not correcting the thought on you're just naturally, you know, think about it in Vanderpump Rules. I actually do feel that people on VPR have been actually super honest because not only has Lala been, but Stasi was honest that she had a chin him. So oh, yeah. Like, no, I mean, they've been honest, but then you can also look and be like, oh, my gosh, this is genetics. There's no amount of uh, medical whatever she could have done. Lala looked like amazing right after giving birth. Sheena didn't have right. the bounce back. She looked amazing, but she didn't have the bounce back that Lala did, right? But you look at her a year or two down the road, now, does she have cool sculpting? Does she do? Yeah, I don't I'm, I'm, still, I'm still telling people I'm postpartum, like I need to lose my weight. But at some point, my son's going to be four December 30th. I haven't lost all of the weight, but I don't, you know. Yeah. 
you know, and I'm a working and, mom. And, <laughs> and it's not a, even about losing the baby weight, but it's like she hasn't come out about it one way or other. She's been open about certain things that she's yes. done. And I'm not saying that Sheena needs to give us a biography on her and give us the password to her medical chart. You can say none of your damn business and fine. Right. But also if she looks so good, look at her, how she looks for her wedding and she's lost all this weight. And oh my gosh. And why can't I, I, whether I've had a baby or not, I can't lose the weight, this, that. And so people do have a sphere of influence and it's not that you can't just go live your life, but in terms of how that perception that we're okay, not correcting the record or at least sharing, or we go out of our way and lie. I mean, there's plenty of celebrities that do. You know, oh, right. no, I've never had cosmetic surgery. And it's like, well, especially now with the Ozempic and all those drugs, like everyone denying. Right. Why deny it? Why? What? But there's so much shame. Because I think there's a lot of that criticism that comes along. There's that shame. You should be able to do it without Ozempic or you should be able to do it without a gastric bypass. And it's like none of us know what other people are going through medically and why they need to consider different roads. But it does reinforce that amount of shame of if I need or if I do. And sometimes it's not even about a need. Sometimes it's that faulty perception, like you're talking about in BDD. It's not that you have this grotesque skin, but you see that and you feel that and you identify with that. Like, I am that. I'm grotesque. And then we go out and we can see all the different ways that we can fix it. And already there's shame in talking about what we're doing for whatever reason, whether we need it or not. And so it, it's tricky and it's not an easy solve, but also the solve isn't going to be, well, we'll just don't go then on social media. I mean, it's not realistic. I don't think that that's fair. And that's where I always come in and saying like, I like, and I think in the article, I sort of dictated some like safety, like some like sort of rule of thumb of like what you can do. So you can definitely go back to that article. It's a pretty quick read of like just how to navigate it and, and depending upon what you're dealing with. I mean, it's like, even if someone had OCD, like your OCD is about fear of diseases while like going on social media and, and seeing support groups for people with those diseases are probably gravitate towards that. That's not going to be helpful for you. That's going to trigger you. So it's right. like, you just got to really know where it is. For me personally, I love taking social media breaks because it brings me back to like a grounding. But sometimes I feel I want to be on it. And when I notice that my life is more about me looking on my phone and posting updates than I come in. Yeah. So I think it's, it's a personal thing, but I don't think you should ever tell someone they can never use it because they have a disorder. I, I always say this. There's only one disorder where abstinence is key and every other disorder is a work in progress and we're not perfection. And we expect dip. We expect you to have moments where you give into your compulsions. Same with OCD. There's no perfection in it. The only diagnosis that we expect perfection is addiction. Yeah. And that's just because that's the diagnosis like required. But short of that, we're not perfect. And right. we're never deemed to be perfect when it comes to a mental health issue and it comes to treatment. Right. Right. And someone in recovery from their addiction will be the first to tell you it's not that the thoughts don't cross their mind. But they have to actively choose right. that. And so even whether it's one day or 30 or 60 years even, it's an active choice of going, okay, how am I right. how am I going to respond to this? So it's not that your brain changes. And that's the same case with BDD. It's the same case with OCD. Right. It's not that your brain is going to stop being your brain. Your brain is going right. to brain. 
So learning how to have a healthy relationship and not getting in this toxic relationship with it is going to be key. So, yeah. Well, this has been really interesting. I, as a kind of an ancillary thing, wrote a little quick note about VPR. <laughs> it says VPR, plastic surgery, like water. That was my note to sell. But I mean, I think that they're pretty uh, open. I mean, they are open. Percent, but yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. at the end of the day, I think if you sat and you like brought Sheena on your podcast, or you went on hers. And I think if you directly asked her, I don't think she's going to sit and deny it. I, I think they're pretty, I like what I like about them, ironically, I do think they're pretty real and honest. I don't know how much of the staging, whatever, but I watched Selling Sunset fully because it's my old lot. And I feel like that is the fakest thing I've ever seen. Like, I'm like, people in LA do not dress the nines. Everyone listening, people in LA do not dress the nines. We dress in sweat and yeah. flip flop. Okay. I live nice, in West Nice sweats, like Lululemon sweats. <laughs> you know, that's fine. I mean, like, no one dresses the way they dress. Like, I've never seen it. And I asked even a friend who lives there now, and she's like, yeah, no one dresses like that. So once again, we're giving this notion to the world, like this is how you're supposed to look. Yeah. But that's not even how people look there. Yeah. You know what? This is so funny. When I first moved to L.A. for grad school, the first time I went down to Hollywood, which is just seedy as shit, frankly, as right. many areas in L.A. and <laughs> went down to the Chinese theater. And, you know, what do you see? Like, it's like you see these different areas and, and stuff. And it's so glamorous in the life of the movie stars. So I go down there. First of all, I'm trying to find parking where the meter maids aren't going to just totally like eat me alive, which anybody who's lived in L.A. knows the parking is crazy. And where we park, we get out. We're like pretty close to where all the stars are on the sidewalk and where you can go see the footprints or whatever. <laughs> and I park. And I see SpongeBob and Jasmine, some characters people will dress oh, up because so it's, a, it's a tourist trap where people come and they want to take pictures or whatever, smoking a joint before it was legal in California and walking. And it's like and, and there was like a store as I'm walking up from where I parked to go to the Chinese theater. We walked past the store that was selling fresh saliva. No, what? I don't know. Fresh a, saliva? Maybe for a drug test or whatever. You know, there's all oh sorts my of God. shit. And you're seeing all this along with like the Chinese theater. And it's just like, which isn't even branded as the Chinese well, theater. Well, because Hollywood's like, a, I mean, they're trying and, to remind us. Yeah, it's, like it's, it's a dump. But but again, it's like this perception of like, I'm going to walk wow, and yeah, see movie stars. All yes, well, like, over the no place. No one wants to live in Hollywood. You're right. I mean, my husband used to live kind of down the street of a much nicer area, kind of over by the Grove. And it was so nice. And it was close to Melrose. It was close to these other areas, which sounds like we're talking about a 90210 episode. <laughs> and a little bit we are. But in, in terms of living in that area, it was nice there. But you walk down garbage. I hear it's worse now, especially post-COVID. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, I can only imagine. And so you just go like, yeah, everything is so glamorous appearing, but it's it's fake. It's a facade. Well, I think that's important. I think that so so to go a little past just the social media piece, I think is also watching the reality TV. I want to be very clear as someone who lived in Los Angeles and like lived in those like neighborhoods. That's not what's actually going on. Right. And I think I think what's clear is and what's nice is because these reality stars actually have social media profiles, if you take a look at them, like someone like Lala, she's posting like her sweats and stuff. And so when she's not taping, this is who she is. Yeah. She's not resting to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
And it, it, it is, it's interesting. And so I love where it spiraled. I'm never surprised though by where conversations spiral. I'm like, what? Wow, that was so interesting. So what I will say is I'm going to link all of these, link your Lala and your, it was really done. It was really Oh, I'm talking. sure. So I'm, I'm going to listen. Gonna say, Girlfriend, I'm going to listen. Know, obviously, I stand girl for prior to our recording. So I just said that she's a great single mama. And she's doing what she's doing. I'm super proud of her. And she did the right thing. So, yeah. I, you know, I think I think we just, in general, with media, mm-hmm. we just have to take it with a grain of salt. It's entertainment. Right, right. It's a, it I is... mean, we can both attest that because we lived out there. Yeah. So, oh, I mean, I never felt a certain way. I never felt like I need to look like a plastic doll to live in L.A. Yeah. So I think it is an important conversation. And I appreciate so much your time, Robin. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes. We're like-minded and sort of our mentalities. And that's what I appreciate about the podcasts that are run by people. So that I get that opportunity to hear people's perceptions of things and see. And hey, maybe you will be one of, because we would love to have a BDD therapist in Indiana. <laughs> so that might be something you may want to delve into. Because we always, I feel like, are looking for people that are very serious about wanting to understand. Well, and I do, my very first OCD case was a BDD case. And I remember, and this this stuck with me. I was advocating with the pediatrician on this case about getting started on medication and how we were already doing ERP. But I think this client has BDD as well. Right. And one of the statements she made, I remember, and this was a young girl, y'all, and she was distressed about a lot of things. She had really heightened and severe OCD too. But I remember her talking about she was feeling so down and I was like, what's going on? And she said, I took a shower and I turned up the heat on the shower as hot as I could stand because I hate my skin so much. And I was just hoping that it would burn and that I could, I could, you know, because there was no way the parents were going to allow plastic surgery or anything like that at that age. And this person felt so hopeless. Makes me want to cry just even thinking about it, of how she was like, I failed because I I couldn't take the heat. I feel like if I could have just done it a little longer, I would have made it. And to her, the answer was like, maybe I could give myself such a bad degree burn. That I would need. That I would have to have like skin graphing. And and I remember thinking that that's BDD. That's BDD. That's definitely not OCD. Right. And she had really severe OCD too, but I remember. I mean, you could have both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I remember... And and I think since then, I, I have some pediatrician that refers, uh, and I see not just kids, I see people of all ages, but I have some pediatrician I get a shit ton of referrals from, and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I have a waiting list, but I'm glad somebody <laughs> feels like I get it, you know? And, and so I am not opposed to treating BDD. I'm by no means an expert in it, but I am so grateful for folks like you, for Chris, for Scott, for everybody working and doing this work because well I just hope that you know for myself my younger self like that just continue pushing in the research I know I felt a very big void he was my psychiatrist Dr. Jamie Fuser who I referenced up the wazoo with his functional MRI studies but I felt a very big loss we lost him from UCLA and he went to Canada so I feel like that was a very big researcher for us in the U.S. for BDD obviously Canada is still part of our world. So I feel like we still will benefit from his research. But I felt for the United States, like, wow, that was a big hole for us. And that's why we're having these conversations. 
that's why I love because you look at Lala and Sheena's reach and her friend's reach and 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 that's why these influencers get paid for companies because they have such a reach, right? They have millions of viewers, right? You know, those are the people. It's not that they suffer any more or any less, and it's not to take away. I want to be very clear to people: it's, it's not to say that your illness, your BDD or your OCD doesn't matter. It's just the reality of what people's platform. And if you don't really have the platform, there's only so much your story is going to touch. It's not going to touch as many people as someone who can touch a million people. Right. Right. But having the conversations and you never know. Because, like, I wouldn't have known that you had a connection or we didn't even know that we were both from California. I didn't know that. Right. And now we know that we know all these places and that the reality is most people are just sitting there on the 405 second traffic. It's not even just California. L.A. LA is a very different mentality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It is its own vibe. It's totally, yeah. yeah. I relate. Well, this has been a joy. I feel like I'm a new friend, Robin. Yes, I always feel that way when I do these podcasts, especially with my uh, therapist. Yeah, yeah. So we would love to keep in touch. And this is so helpful. I'm going to link people to you too. You're just, if anybody is looking for more information about BDD, I will also mention. Absolutely. Uh, there is going to be an online conference in 2024 for BDD. Yes. I think it's going to be a great virtual conference for people to have access to it. I think there'll be some similarity between if you were in person um, because there was the track there. But I think having it online will be able to reach a lot of people that maybe wouldn't necessarily run to a CG conference if they have BDD. Right, right, right. This is really geared towards that. Love that. All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you. So great talking to you, Nicole. Let's, let's keep in touch. Yes. Thank you for that. Oh, that was so great, right? And I love Robin's New York accent. So fun. So thanks again, Robin, for helping us understand BDD better and for all our discussion around social media and how it can impact BDD. Now, I know we talked a bit about Vanderpump Rules or VPR in case that acronym wasn't clear for all of y'all, but I think it was an important discussion because sub another show, another celebrity, another prominent public figure, and we can see how this topic of outer appearance makes such an impact. But I think as we chatted about what we see circulating on social media and how things are portrayed, what filters or angles we use to elevate or augment our own situations, it's still valid. You don't have to have watched Vanderpump Rules to understand the point of that conversation. And this is the media that we consume. At this point, social media, for that matter, is consumed at even greater rates than traditional media. But social media, legacy media, you name it, it's there. So while we aren't calling for folks to cancel their accounts on social media or never surf again, understanding the delicious misery it can create is pretty important. It can be toxic. And most of what we're viewing isn't quote-unquote real. But we can easily fall into the trap or set expectations on who or what we should be based on what we see. So that's a helpful part of the conversation, but let's circle back to the nucleus of our chat today, and that's understanding BDD. BDD isn't a cosmetic surgery addiction. It's not a vanity issue. It's not the colloquial, culturally defined definition of, quote, body dysmorphia, unquote. It's not about preferences or hashtag goal bods. 
It's a very distressing, very cruel disorder that ultimately interferes with functioning. That's a pretty important point. So we'll say it again. It interferes with people engaging in their lives or their work or relationships or school. It's got that cruel egocentric nature that has the brain saying to the sufferer, this is who you are. Gross, disgusting, irreputably flawed. It's a devastating disorder. And as much as I thought I understood about BDD, this chat was really eye-opening for me as well. Just even with regards to the Vanderpump Rules crowd or insert a celebrity of your choice, the honesty, the transparency, the willingness to continue to be filmed despite the aspirations of continually surgically tweaking their body, that also shows, though, their ability to continue to engage in their life, to put themselves on a screen and expose themselves for the world to see. To say that would be a living nightmare for a BDD sufferer is a complete understatement. For some folks, being at their community mailbox, let alone the thought of being filmed and broadcast across the world, is enough to cripple them. And so while it's okay to think and debrief and try to understand what's happening for people, it's a good reminder that while it's easy to be an armchair quarterback, we don't have the full story. And understandably, when we're talking about OCD or BDD or any of these OCRD issues, the most vulnerable pieces of our experience are typically the most closely guarded as well. Because there's a lot of fear, there's shame, there's disgust, there's pain around what if I am grotesque? What if I'm a monster? And the weight of the distress can be nearly incalculable. So for today's intrusive thought segment, which is my application segment of the show, I want to challenge us to do this, fam. Just like we can't watch a snippet of the Kardashians or Vanderpump Rules or even our sisters or brothers, fathers or mothers, and know the full, whole story, we can't be in their brain. Let's take a step back and look at what we post on social media. How do we engage for ourselves, for others? What angles or filters, lighting, or now, heck, AI-generated anything do we employ? I want you to open up your Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, Discord, and just think about the story behind the story. For me, maybe it's a picture of one of my cutie doodle kiddos, but just out of frame is the scattered toy and book and someone's sock that inevitably will never find its pair again. Moment of silence for that sock. And I'm not asking you to go correct the record for everyone, or anyone for that matter, but I am asking you to think about why you present what you present. If it's true, if it's possible that you are not communicating the whole story with what you share, then I guess all I'm saying is it's important for us to remember the same for others too, no matter a person's age, skin color, gender, sexual orientation, religious or political affiliation, occupation or privilege. We don't know the whole story. And again, we often don't share our full stories either. And so if anything, may we extend some grace this week to both ourselves and to each other. Because as lonely and as painful as those vulnerable pieces can feel, realizing this helps us to know that we're not alone in that. So I hope you were able to learn something new about BDD today, fam. I know I did. And I hope we're all able to recognize our own filters 
what we are clinging to, what we are communicating. Because in an augmented world, I think peace is actually grounded in reality. And heck, what we've been learning about OCD and inference-based CBT, that's totally true. Grounding ourselves in reality, even when it's a hard reality, really brings freedom. So thanks again for joining us. Next week, we are going to be talking about pans, pandas, and limes. Oh my, you might be like, what are those things? And if so, please do come back and join us because there's a lot more to learn and we're better together. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit OCDFamilyPodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like talking BDD with Robin and me. That's right. I went there. And you can too at OCD Family Podcast.